0: Father, we um, we need you in our world. Our world needs you so much. Lord, we need you to give perspective. Lord, we um, we hear calls for civility. We hear calls for um, justice. And Lord, we recognize that as our nation moves further and further away from your truth and your um, rightful rulership over us, we move further and further away from the foundation of civility and the foundation of justice. Father, as we learn from our passage here this morning, we know that you can speak into our sin. You can speak into the consequence of our having walked away from you. And you can work in grace and in truth. Lord, we pray for those cities across our nation uh, that are seeing unrest. Lord, we pray that, that um, healthy expression of indignation would be separated from violent and useless expression of anarchy we pray lord god for calm we pray lord god for um, for grace with one another lord we ask that you would speak to us through our passage here this morning Uh, speak to us against the lies that we are surrounded with in this world and from your enemy your truth it's the foundation of life, certainly abundant life. Give us abundant life here through your truth and through your Holy Spirit this morning. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We look at the Psalms as combining where we are, getting real, being real about where we are, and combining with that who God is and what amounts from that. We look today at Psalm 51. And one writer has said, Few psalms have found as much use as this one among the saints of all ages. It's possible that you've made verses from Psalm 51 a part of your prayer, even maybe unknowingly, unthinkingly, specifically, Especially prayers of repentance. You might recall verses from Psalm 51, like verse 1 that says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Or verse 10 that says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 51 is the result of repentance, which is the result of conviction over David's egregious sin. I title this message "From Bad to Worse to Grace." I remember uh, reading about a, a a woman who was going to be uh, feeding her family, but also entertaining another family in her in her home at a special supper that that week, and she decided to get a whole chicken from the butcher counter, and, and so she goes to the butcher counter and she says, "Okay, I'm feeding eight people, and so I need a large chicken." Uh, so what do you have there? And he, and he pulls out a. He looks in his his uh, uh, cooler there, and he realizes he's only got one chicken. So he's like, "All right, well, how about this one?" five pounds. you know. Sets it up on the scale. Oh, it's five pounds. How's that one? She's like, yeah, you know, um, I'm really concerned about not having enough, so maybe do you have a larger one? He's like, uh, let me check. Picks that one up and does an old butcher trick, I guess, and pulls the same chicken out, and this time when he sets it up there, he puts a little pressure with his hand behind the chicken on the scale. Like, oh, six pounds. How's that? She's standing there. She's like, ah, Still don't know. So I tell you what, just to be safe, I'll take both of them. So, you know, the unintended consequence of his lie here starts to pile up a little bit. We have seen over this past week, over the Internet and and over TV, the consequence of a police officer's uncaring and I'll say murderous actions. We've seen the consequence of a police Chief and prosecutor and grand jury that refused to bring charges against a police officer, the same police officer who had had complaints, formal complaints against him over 12 times. We've seen the consequence of a people being constantly enraged by their their community leaders and the media justifying anything. Or of outside anarchists flooding Minneapolis and St. Paul, taking advantage of the opportunity for lawlessness. We've seen the consequence of neighborhoods decimated with little hope of ever being the same. If David had foreseen the consequence of his actions in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, his life, his family would have turned out very differently. Understand the actions that led up to Psalm 51 are a pivoting point in David's life. Previous to that, it was abundant growth and expansion and and, uh, fruitfulness. After this, it was sadness, distance, violence. Well, you know, this, this message is, is titled From Bad to Worse to Grace, and I'm going to have a little bit of grace on you guys. I got home and learned that I preached for 56 minutes last week, and that's because we both covered uh, what was going on in David's life and Psalm 51. So what we're doing this week is we're looking mostly at 2 Samuel verses uh, chapters 11 and 12 and dipping a little bit into Psalm 51, and next week we'll dig deeper into Psalm 51. So if you'll turn with me, to Second Samuel chapters, chapter eleven, we read in verse one, and we see the recipe for temptation. It Says, "In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel." Now, we first take note here. It's very clear that it's stated. It's the time of the year when kings go out to battle. And David stayed home. The Bible commentary says, Every able-bodied man in Israel goes to war except the king himself? The contrast between David and his men could hardly be expressed in starker terms. So it continues. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So uh, from Jeff gave me a picture of uh, this setting, and, and maybe if you can see it there, uh, this is from Jeff's recent trip to Israel. This is actually taken from the uh, area where David's palace was in uh, the part of Jerusalem that's called the city of David. And you can see some of those rooftops that he would have been overlooking and how easy that would have been. And we continue on in verse 3 and it's, it, we look at this as a di- downward spiral to death. It says, and David sent and inquired about the woman and one said is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Being the daughter of Eliam this would make her the granddaughter of H- Ahithophel. Ahithophel is one of David's very own personal counselors. Uriah was one of David's valiant God-fearing foreign mercenaries. Uh, born a Hittite who had joined David's military, probably functioning as kind of a captain. And so we read in verse 4, So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, from my study, this this is basically an uh, innuendo for go make a conjugal visit to your house. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. I don't know if this was a bottle of wine or an aphrodisiac or something like that. But they make note of that. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? We don't really read into this uh what's there, but but <clears throat> I believe that David's kind of getting kind of crass with Uriah, kind of starting to question his manhood a little bit. Why on earth would you not want to go down to your house, Uriah? It says Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord. Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go to my house and eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. The irony in these verses is intense. It is Joab or Uriah's commitment to his king that keeps him from doing this thing. It's it's David's commitment to no one but himself at this time that drives him. Uriah, the God-fearing Hittite mercenary, is trusting and dedicated to his God-anointed king. But David, the God-anointed king, isn't acting very trustworthy or God-fearing. In verses 12 through 13, we see that, David invites Uriah back to his house, and, and they have uh, they imbibe somewhat, and David uh, makes sure that Uriah gets a little tipsy, and, and hoping that it's going to make his loosen in his inhibitions, and then sends him back. Go see your wife, Uriah. We read in verse fourteen. In the morning, David wrote a letter. Oh, I'm sorry. And then and then David hears back. No, Uriah didn't go down to his house. He still stays with his convictions. So then in verse 14 we read, In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the front of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Again we see the the irony here. Righteous Uriah carries his own unrighteous death sentence. Had he distrusted his king, he may have sensed that something was up. Had he not been trustworthy, he may have read his orders that he carried. So we read sadly in verse 16, and as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew where there were valiant men and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Joab sends word to David about the battle in verses 18 through 24. And he, and he tells the messenger, okay, so tell David what happened. Tell him that a number of our men died because we got too close to the city. And when he gets upset, just let him know, and Uriah also is dead. So the servant goes to David and he gives him a blow-by-blow blow of the battle. He includes the fact that they got so close that the archers were able to shoot down from the wall and things like that. And the, and notice, if if you see there... The messenger didn't wait for David to ask. He also says, oh, and by the way, Uriah's dead. Now, I kind of take from this that some of the people around David, he might think he's being sneaky here, but some of the people are picking up a little bit of what's going on. David's got it in for Uriah. If you'll notice, Joab doesn't follow David's orders specifically where he says, go up close to the city and then have everybody else pull back except for Uriah. I think Joab is thinking, that's going to be a little bit too obvious, David. But if you'll notice in verse 17, it says, Some of the servants of David among the people fell. More than just Uriah died in this plot, in this scheme. We see in verse 25 and following a seemingly successful cover-up. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours one, now one, and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage him. David didn't even show the upset um, facade that Joab thought he would. Read in verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, She lamented over her husband, and when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is only a seemingly successful cover-up. God only speaks in the last verse of this chapter, and it's enough to just say he is not happy about this situation. So what does he do? Likely a year later, the the child of David and Bathsheba is born. They're thinking maybe we got married close enough that it could seem like the baby was just born early, and it belonged to us, the two of us, uh, under matrimony. But God sends His prophet Nathan. We see that God speaks into this tragedy. In verse 1 of chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him. And this would have been customary. That maybe there would be something unjust happen within his kingdom. That someone like a prophet would come to him and almost to say. "Uh, David I need you to judge something here. There's something that went on and you need to know about it. And we need to know what to do about it. So Nathan tells him this story. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. This is a poor man, remember. And he brought it up, and it grew up to be with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel. What's a morsel? It's just a small amount of food. But yet this man would share it with this lamb and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or or herd, his, his many animals, to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. The parallel here is that one person took what was loved and cherished by another and used it as an object for their own pleasure. And, folks, I want to tell you, just as a side note, I think that that is a picture of the scourge of pornography on our land taking what is cherished by God, cherished by a mother and father, and using it as an object for one's own pleasure. You see, David's shepherd heart was enraged by this in verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, And the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. I don't know. I don't think he's saying this man is going to be killed because I don't know if he could restore the lamb fourfold if he's dead. But he's saying he deserves to die. Nathan said to David, you can see him just pointing his bony finger up at him sitting on that throne. You are are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah and if this were too little, I would have added, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. Speaking of David's son, Absalom. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. In other words, in broad daylight. For you did it in secret, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. We see here grace is mixed with consequence. In verse 13, we read, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Winford Neely says, this, this Nathan uttered here some of the most gracious words in the Old Testament. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. But Nathan continues, nevertheless, because you did This deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. When writing Psalm 51, David is in a place of repentance and regret. But it took some doing for him to get there. It took some doing. 1 Corinthians 10 verses, 13 through, uh, verses 11 through 13, they share with us the importance of learning from David's failure. It speaks about Old Testament saints or those who did not, who did not fear the Lord in the Old Testament. We read in this 1 Corinthians 10, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction On whom the end of the ages has come. The end of the ages being we live on this side of the cross. And so these examples that were written down for us, they are for our instruction. Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. But we take mostly from these verses, along with the fact that that we can always get away from temptation with God's help. We take that this was written for our instruction, for us to learn from. This very principle that God is faithful, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And from our verses here, I want to challenge you here. You must go to war against indwelling sin. We are born because of our relationship with Adam. We are born with a sin nature. We are born um, with not only our flesh that makes us a, a, a lightning rod for temptation, We are born with a sin nature that in many ways controls us. When a person comes to know Christ as their Savior, that sin nature is dethroned, and we are given the indwelling Holy Spirit. And thank God that we are, because that indwelling Holy Spirit must help us to battle. We must find power through walking by that Spirit to battle indwelling sin, which still tempts us and affects us. Because we still live in this flesh. We see when David should have been going to war against his indwelling sin, as well as against Israel's enemies, he was sitting at home. You know what we say about the idle mind? It's a playground of the devil. Uh, even a uh, article that I read from even a, a source like the Huffington Post used that term. The idle mind is the devil's playground. And it talks about how do people end up in addiction. One of the first things that it warns against is boredom. Boredom. Because the idle mind is the devil's playground. Psalm 51, here we see that David knows, he recognizes what his problem is. When he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, that hesed love, that long loving love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That idea of blot out my transgressions, we describe that as when somebody has their record expunged. The crime and the conviction that they had is just wiped off of it. Or, or when the, the idea of we, we understand the need for cleansing when you hear about a restaurant or a business that, that where there was a COVID infection that was traced back to there, they'll say, and it was closed for deep cleaning. That's the idea of cleanse me from my sin. Part of how we go to war against indwelling sin is how we deal with sin. Sin. When we commit it, folks, confession is so important. Seeking restitution with those that we harm is so important in going to war against sin. 1 John 1, 9 and 10 tells us, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is the exercise of the grace that we receive when we come to Christ as our Savior. But notice what verse 10 says of 1 John 1. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. Unconfessed sin is a mockery of God's grace. Confession simply means, God, I agree You said it's wrong. I did it. That makes it wrong. That makes what I did wrong. That makes me wrong in doing that. Also from these verses, we must expect greater consequence than what you foresee. You must expect greater consequence than what you foresee. Notice David and Bathsheba's adultery, it leads to pregnancy. Their cover-up leads to murder. The sacrifice of Uriah, it's not just Uriah that dies, as you can see there in verse 17. It's many, uh, several of the servants of David along with him also die. These are men that won't be coming home to their families and their children. They think they've kept it a secret. But as we see in verse 27, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Winford Neely also says that cover up on earth is an open scandal in heaven. Reminds me of the, the statement I've shared with you before. The old proverb, time and truth walk hand in hand. One might be a little bit ahead of the other, but the other one is following. What we try to keep secret only comes out in the end. God tells David in verse 11, I, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you and out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this sun in broad daylight. And what does David say? That lamb should be paid back fourfold. You know what happened to David? His life was never the same. His family tree was never the same. David lost four sons. He lost his baby with Bathsheba. He lost, as you can see this on your page there in a little box, he lost Amnon. He lost Absalom, the one who... who ravaged his concubines on the rooftop of his palace after he ran David out of town. They lost Adonijah. And Uriah. Think of the consequence there. You know, it's it's interesting because when we think about that story of the lamb uh that that the the rich man took and, and killed and used for his own purposes. We usually think of that as Bathsheba. But I think it's Uriah. David took someone who was, who was um, cherished by his family. Cherished by his wife. And sacrificed him for his own purposes. In Psalm 51 we see the consequence of the inner turmoils of David's heart. Here he writes this a year later. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Speaking of his calloused heart is why he says create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Let me ask you something. If I said, hey, I've got a job for you, okay? It's going to take 24 hours a day commitment and it's going to be about $250 $250 to $300 a year. Would you take me up on it? Well, that's basically what a bank robber should think about. Because the average bank robber makes off with about $1,000 and gets about three to four years in prison. So that comes out to about 250 to 300 bucks a year. And if they pull off two bank robberies, their chance of getting caught is 140% doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But why do people do it? Because they're not thinking about the consequence. And I'll tell you this. Guarantee you. The consequences are always greater than what we think they're going to be when we're drunk with temptation. The consequences are always greater. That's part of Satan's ploy. They're always greater than what we think they're going to be when we are drunk with temptation. Temptation is planning a crime against God's righteousness. Expect greater consequences than what you foresee. Lastly, from this passage, we see we must surrender to God's grace for his glory. Nathan says, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. Verse nine. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in His sight? Now, there's there's kind of a principle here. Okay, every sin is just as grievous in God's sight, but sins vary greatly by consequence, and we see that in this passage. So that's part of the element here of why would you sin against the Lord? And we see David's response, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan's response, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. This is why in Psalm 51, David recognizes God's glory as what is most important here. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But I've got to tell you something here. I think we aren't meant to read this and think, what the heck, God? He's a murderer. By all intents and purposes, he's a rapist. I mean, this would be Me Too stuff all over Jerusalem. The abuse of power. How could God let David go without punishment? What about Uriah's mom and dad? We are meant to be struck by God's steadfast love for David. And it's the same steadfast love that he has for any one of his children. And I don't understand it completely. But there was definitely consequence for David. David recognizes that, that he lives only by God's grace. This is why he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Part of this is intended to communicate. According to the Mosaic law, there isn't anything that will cover this, folks. No offering will do Of course, there's those beautiful words verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. The Lord listens to repentance. On the island of Okinawa, around June 17th, when the Marines finally took it, It was a battle of World War II that the locals of that area described the American fleet as a typhoon of steel. Residents were actually told by the Japanese soldiers and by government officials that American soldiers consistently raped, tortured, and ate Japanese civilians. Entire families committed suicide out of fear or out of obedience to the emperor's instructions to do so rather than to be captured. One man recalled, as I read about him, when a child, he tried to kill himself. First he tried with the hand grenade that was supplied to him by the Japanese army for that purpose. And then with a rope around his neck, he tried to suffocate himself. Finally, when he obeyed the U.S. soldier's orders to come out of the cave he was hiding in with his mother, he was given candy and clothes and food. I share with you this for you to get a better understanding here. When we are being tempted, okay, when you're being tempted, try Satan tries very hard to make you think you are king of the world and try to get you to sin against your king. And he tries just as hard, though, if not harder, after you sin, to keep you in his torturous grasp of guilt and shame, telling you that there is no grace for you. That is the lesson from this event for us. Whereas as Paul Tripp puts it, he has a whole devotional based on Psalm 51 called Whiter Than Snow. And he says this, you'll never get David's story or the expand. Expansive helpfulness of Psalm 51. If you stand apart from the story and say to yourself, "I am so glad that I am not like David," to say that completely misses the point. The story is in the Bible precisely because David's story is your story. No, I don't mean that you're you're an adulterer and a murderer. What I mean is that like David, you are a sinner. There are times when you let yourself be ruled by your self-focused desires rather than by God's clear commands. There are times when you love something in the creation more than you love the Creator. There are times when you willingly step over God's boundaries in pursuit of what you want. There are times when your little kingdom of one means more to you than this transcendent kingdom of glory. There are times when you work hard to deny what you've done, or to cover your tracks in fear of being caught. Remember something, folks. David's family tree was changed dramatically into one of sadness. But that consequence did not come because of his sin with Bathsheba. It came because of What proceeded in his covering it up? It came from him believing, I can fix this. I can cover it up. And the consequences just piled one after another after another until David's family tree was totally different after that. Don't believe the enemy when he tells you, you can fix this. You can cover it up. Confess it to the Lord. Confess it to those that you've wronged. And find forgiveness and grace. It's there for you. Let's bow our heads.